I mean, I feel like you've instructed me long ago to not have to do your own yard work. Just hire people to do it. Get on with your day. That's a very, I don't know. It just seems like a very elitist perspective by you, I mean. Noted elitist. There are things that I will not pay for. And then there are things I pay for I don't even think twice. <laughs> people who use, I can't remember the name of the app, to get their shopping done for them. Instacart. That is bizarre to me. No, never. I'm never going to pay someone to go do my grocery shopping. Having seen the people that shop for Instacart firsthand and see how frustrated they get and how little they care about what they do, I would have to agree with you on that one. That's a no for me, but you want me to mow the lawn and like rake leaves and Ah. do pool chemistry work and all that? It's like the guy who comes and does my landscape, I pay him 50 bucks. A pop. Yeah, but in Arizona, what kind of landscaping do you have? I feel like there's nothing that falls from the sky, not even rain. I have a backyard. There's grass there. There's the various trees that I have there, various shrubberies. (laughs) Shrubberies are my trade. I am a shrubber. My name is Roger the Shrubber. I arrange, design, and sell shrubberies. The front yard is gravel, but they got to pull out like the weeds and stuff like that because left unabated, you get a bunch of weeds that grow and you know the like the such the idea that i would sit there and spend an afternoon doing that to save fifty dollars i don't know i kind of like it kind of like it you get into sort of zen it's oh it's almost like going on a run or getting some it's not yoga it's not meditative but howard do you do you break your leaves or do your own landscaping do you have a green thumb howard do you even have a yard like aren't you in the city i'm in a uh second floor walk up with a uh, very tiny balcony off the back, uh, that is would be the only thing I could possibly. I, we don't own a rake. Let's let's face it. We don't own a rake. We live in a condo building. The condo association pays for somebody else to rake, sweep, mm-hmm. spray water, whatever it is that that needs to be done to uh, clear debris from the front. But uh, yeah, I got no yard. I got no lawn. I got no trees. This is starting to sound like a bad country song. Yeah, I, I kind of like it. I kind of dig it. We were discussing last night on the post-game show uh, at Levitard. We did a – after the Bucks game, Bucks lakers Amin and I did a show. We had Mo DeKeel on. It was great. We did file or phobe. Instead of buy or so or sell or yes or no, we did file or phobe on coaching half-zips, like the coaches wearing half-zip sweaters – And I realized that this is something that you do, that the pandemic, it's a permanent thing that seemed temporary during the pandemic, but it's become more permanent than we thought. What is something in your life, Howard, that was a temporary thing because of pandemic, but you've actually been like, you know what? This is this is the rest of my life. I'm I'm gonna do this. Like I, this is more permanent than just a temporary COVID thing. Well, first of all, I'm a big fan of of half zips, and I'm a big fan of coaches wearing things that are more comfortable because coaches sweating through their suits or just looking all constrained and buttoned up in the tie and everything while they're also like frothing on the sideline just made me uncomfortable watching them. Interesting outgrowth of the. Um, Coaches no longer having to wear suits, now wearing like more casual clothes. This is not across the board. I have not seen every team, but I've noticed that some teams, the PR people who always wore suits and, and you know, sport coats and everything, at least the men, because they're around the coaches and they're the ones, they're not, it's spread to them. 
So like, I, I feel like PR staffs are now can getting to dress down a little bit too. So again, I'm, I'm happy for all these people who get to like relax a little because as a schlubby sports writer who does not believe in ties, sports coats, dry cleaning, if it's got to be dry, for like anything that's got to be dry cleaned, pressed, starched, uh, cuff links attached. Like who, I don't, I don't, I have time for that stuff. I don't have the resources that just let's get rid of it all. I'm going to tell you right now, Howard, turns out nobody wanted to dress like this. They just did it because people thought that was what was expected to them. So once we remove the expectation, because technically all of these coaches are free to wear what they want. You know, like Eric Spolster wants to go back to the black suit with the white shirt. Like he came from a funeral every fucking day of his career. <laughs> he is free to do that. Can he? Yeah. I feel like he can. We got to get Arnovitz on this. I feel like Arnovitz does his own uh, fashion NBA coach fashion uh, power rankings. And I feel like he might have some insight whether Eric Spolstra, I'm trying to think of some other, Kenny Atkinson. Carlisle's a guy who has mentioned he's a little sad that the suits have gone away, but he understands why none of his assistants want to ever wear suits again. So that's why Carlisle is kind of going along with it. But yeah, the reality is, look, no one wants to wear suits, right? There was a time in this country where you had to wear a suit all the time, every time. Going to the supermarket, put on a suit. I'm going to brunch, put on a suit, right? Going to McDonald's, wearing a suit. And then, like, it loosened up and it became only at work. Then it became only certain kinds of work. And now I feel like we finally entered the final stage, which is... Athleisure. Funerals, <laughs> weddings, um... What else? Uh, someone's winning an award or something like that. Yeah, bar mitzvahs. Other than that, no one's wearing a suit. No one's wearing a suit, man. No one's wearing a suit. I will say, too, when I first started covering the league, sports writers, by and large, 99% were not mm-hmm. wearing suits. We're not wearing sport coats, oh. ties, whatever. Oh, there, really? There were, a okay. there were a handful. Okay. All right. But it changed. Yeah, you know what? Now that you mention it, like seeing you and Jay Donde and and the rest of the crew, like old school photos, I don't I don't see you guys. No. And then at some point, early mid two thousands, something started to shift, and some guys started always coming in in a suit, and it forced everybody else to kind of like step up a little bit. So for guys like me who like I'm a jeans and t shirt kind of person, I wasn't wearing t shirts to games. So I was like jeans and maybe a button-up shirt, jeans and a sweater, whatever. And suddenly it's like, come on, guys, really? Is this what we're doing now? Do I have to actually go out and like buy a sports coat and wear? But it became more commonplace. And not just sport, like sports coat and jeans, that's kind of standard, like what, dressy casual something. Like that's fine. But guys who started coming routinely in suit and tie uh, was a disturbing shift for me. Because I was like, man, you're, you're making the rest of us look unprofessional by comparison and we're sports writers we're supposed to look unprofessional damn it this is what we do like you know we're yeah we're we're the the you know ink stained wretches like let's not try to put a you know lipstick on a pig i often take credit for beginning the wave that ended up being no one wears dress shoes anymore on tv right now the tnt guys technically got to give them credit they were wearing sneakers first but they were always behind a desk so no one knew that they were in sneakers. Oh, God, I was, so I was the, I no, was the no. one that said, you know what? I'm wearing sneakers, and I want you to see what sneakers I'm wearing. And overnight, all of these, the Mike <laughs> Golick Juniors, the Jay Williams, is all these people. All of a sudden, so 
flashing sneakers and stuff. You're all welcome because every one of you guys looked like you were going to a funeral beforehand. But before before I did that, an entire different career as a scout. I was the first scout to say, I'm not showing up with the half zip fleece with the team logo on it. I'm not showing up with a collared shirt underneath, which I always thought was really weird. I'm not wearing slacks. I'm going to wear sweats. I'm going to wear hoodies. I'm going to wear sneakers. I'm going to look like you don't know what I do Mm. until I pick up my credential. I was doing that up and down the Eastern seaboard, going to practices. Players didn't know who I was. They thought I was just some dude. Meanwhile, I was there gathering intel. I did that shit first when everybody else was, oh, I got to go. I got to go watch Baylor versus uh, uh, Oklahoma State. Uh, let me let me put on my, uh, shut up. I'm like, nobody cares. Who are you representing for? Why are you trying to signal to people who you are? We're supposed to be undercover here. I was that guy. Yeah, incognito. Oh, my yeah. God. You're welcome, basketball. <laughs> Can't believe it means taking credit over some large movement in the NBA. It means taking credit for it. This is wild. I feel like Jay Adande was on the – I feel like – Howard, can you back me up? I feel like Adande was on the whole like wear Jays instead of actual like dress shoes. Yes, he was. I think that's true. And Jay was also probably one of the first ones I knew who was actually dressing more nicely on a routine ba- – but, but not suit and tie, but just maybe sport coat and, and dress shirt, maybe slacks or whatever back when we were in L.A. Um but Jay was also, you know, he, he had become one of the first regulars on Around the Horn at that time. I think I think that TV, anybody who got into TV, that pushed you in a certain direction. And then you brought back, that back to the press room because you were no longer just the ink-stained wretch. You were the ink-stained wretch who made it big and got on TV and got paid real money. Uh, and you're, you, you, you must dress the part on TV. So then you come back to the press room, back to press row. Suddenly, you're, you're dressing a little nicer. Maybe also because you had that extra check in your pocket. You know, these things might be related. A little bit of money. But again, J.A., yes, you're right, Tom. J.A. was showing up to arenas with Jordans on, uh, exclusive Jordans. We got a great collection. But again, J.A. on TV was in a box. You couldn't see his legs. I put him with the TNT guys. Yeah, you guys were wearing sneakers, but you didn't let people know you were wearing sneakers. Shout out to Michael Roth, PR for Staples Center, which will always be, I don't know why I'm going to now be caping for a, a fucking like corporate sponsor name. It will always be Staples Center. Long- yes, office supplies. <laughs> Give me staplers. <laughs> but Michael Roth, who's PR for AEG at Staples Center, uh, he was the first one I knew. Always came to Laker games in full suit and sneakers running shoes, hmm. athletic shoes, whatever else. And they'd be white too, so they would really pop. It would like, he wasn't hiding hmm. it. It was like, this. damn it, yes, this is what I'm doing. I'm walking around all night. I'm pacing around this damn arena 500 miles a night or whatever. I'm going to be comfortable. So shout out to Michael Roth for being the first one I knew in NBA settings doing that on a routine basis before I ever had heard of Amin El Hassan. It doesn't make sense. As my, I keep going back to like, why? Who am I impressing here? What am I looking for? You know, like what kind of validation do I need to wear hard bottom shoes as I'm doing all this stuff. I'm running around here. I've got things to do. I gotta go catch a flight. I gotta return a rental car. And meanwhile, these scouts are showing up like they're about to meet their girlfriend's parents. I don't think Steve Kerr, Steve Kerr is a no tie guy. I feel like he's a no tie guy. Maybe in big games, he's he busts out a tie, but I feel like he's a guy who always has like the open. No tie. He's always been no tie. Steve, Steve, there were like for us when he was a general manager. 
big games meant he broke out the blazer. Because a lot of times he was just going long sleeve shirt, rolled up sleeves, tucked in the like, like khakis, I guess, or something like that, or or slacks of some sort. But like, if it was a big game, he'd have a blazer, like a navy blazer or something like that. So, but Steve is definitely a no tie guy. He probably had the tie when he was doing TNT. He probably had to. TV crews always do. That's a great question. I feel like I should research this. Is look at some old footage of him doing uh, color. Steve Wonders, they called it. Steve that, uh, Wonders, yeah. Steve Wonders, and he'd have that little thought yep. look, looking off. He side. was wearing a tie. He was yep. absolutely wow. wearing a tie. TV man, TV forces you to do things you don't want to do. Even to the man. Well, of course, it's some of you guys who do things you don't want to do. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstro. Welcome to the Haber Show. I'm Tom Haberstro. That's Amin Al Hassan. That over there, 10 minutes into the show, I'm going to do a proper intro. My former colleague, my always friend, Howard Beck from Sports Illustrated. How are you, my man? <laughs> doing well. Doing well. Hope you guys are well as well. Uh, I like inverting this where we just like just start rambling for like 20 minutes and then be like, oh, so everything, everything good? It's good. I like that. They see. They clicked on it. They see the blurb. Tell them who's on the episode. That's Howard Beck. Like, they can't come as a surprise. <laughs> I remember doing a show a couple of years ago at NBC where, uh, like, some radio folks were doing a podcast. And so I, I was taping the podcast and 40 minutes in. Um, he says, uh, in case, in case you didn't know, this is, this is Tom Haberstrow. And I got on him. I'm like, you're 40 minutes into the episode. I kind of feel like they know who they're listening to. And then I just did that. I literally just did that for Howard. So I apologize to the masses out there. I do want to note that, um, Howard Beck wrote a great story for Sports Illustrated about the Warriors, um, and how they're loving being hated. This idea of they want to prove the doubters wrong and you talk to Clay Thompson. And I just want to know, Howard, what was the environment that Clay was in? Was this on a Zoom call? Was this a phone call? Like, did you, did you interview his dog? Like, what kind of vibe was Clay in when you talked to him? I wish I could say it was with Clay and his dog on the boat that he rides across the bay every day, uh, as documented by Scott Cassiola, my former colleague at the New York Times. Um, no, uh, it was in fact at halftime of a game last week in San Francisco, um, sitting uh, in the uh, beautiful new press conference room. Uh, it was just the two of us. He was, you know, obviously not playing, so um, I needed to chat with him about a, a different Warrior story that I'm working on. And while we're talking about just kind of some big picture Warriors stuff, Clay just gets into this this rant about. The, everybody dismissing the Warriors and everybody saying like, oh, sure. And at the time, I think they were either, you know, 9-1, 10-1, whatever. And everybody's like, eh, yeah, that's yeah, fine, whatever. But, you know, soft schedule. They played, you know, they're, they're in the midst of an eight-game homestand. They haven't really had too many big, na- you know, teams on the on the schedule so far. I don't know. Is this, is this even really real? And I guess somebody on one of the debate shows last week, right before that, had in fact really crapped on the whole thing, just dismissed the whole uh, fast start. So Clay is reacting. I don't know to who, you know, we, we know the usual roster of suspects. Somebody had gotten a little overly dismissive. And so Clay was like, get it, got into this whole thing. And that was the quote where he's like, buddy, we got the MVP. We got defensive player of the year. Like 
what are you thinking, man? <laughs> like basically, but I loved it. I loved the way he got there organic. This wasn't because I didn't ask. People like looked at the story because Steve Curry also had a quote in there about how dismissive people had been of them. And and Steve says, says, I'm I'm Arya from Game of Thrones. I got a kill list basically of all the people who and Steve was like a very tongue in cheek as Steve does. Clay was damn fucking serious. And I did not <laughs> ask him, Clay. What do you think of all these people dismissing the Warriors hot stuff? Yeah, here's Jay Williams. Did you hear what he said earlier today? Did you see what <laughs> yeah, Skip Bayless yeah, said today? I didn't I didn't come to him with like a roster of people and all their videos and play it for him and get him fired. I I we were I was asking a big picture question about the season and where things were going. And there's some other things that I'm touching on in this other story that I'm working on. And he just he just went there. So this was something that was like burning in in clay before I got there. And I do think, listen. I think if you're the Warriors, and especially if you're Clay, Clay's been out of action, as we know, for two and a half years. He just got left off the the 75th uh, anniversary team. I voted for him, by the way. I thought he should have made it. I, I do consider that a snub. Um, and I think the, the, this out of sight, out of mind of Clay Thompson, out of sight, out of mind of the Warriors, and even yes, they made that play-in game, and it was a really exciting last part of the season last spring, and the play-in game itself, and there's all this. But I think even coming into this season. All of us who might have some optimistic view of what the Warriors could be, it's all predicated on, well, when Clay comes back, if Clay is still Clay, if some of the young guys pop, if Draymond can have another defensive player of the year type of season. And so instead of it being the Warriors are a reigning dynasty, we're talking about them kind of in the past tense. And I think that that does like that. And if people want to say, well, it's contrived, like how can the Warriors who won three championships and have all these accolades ever feel disrespected? Because that's how it goes. That's that's the athlete ego and self-image. The second you slip a notch and you still have this very high self-image, which you have to have to, to succeed at a, at a high level, of course you're going to feel like people are sleeping on you or crapping on you or, or dismissing you. So I don't think it was a contrivance at all. Like Clay can't wait to get back out there, make that team whole again, and, and really sh- stick it to anybody who thinks that their time has passed. It's funny because what Draymond said, uh, or I guess in his podcast that's coming out today, I saw I saw a clip he posted, but he's just said, you know how bad how disrespectful it has to be for Clay to say something. <laughs> this guy like this guy never. He is a guy who reads physical newspapers, by the way, right? Yeah, not on Twitter. Yeah, you know, he just his Instagram is all like stuff with his dog. Like he found out he wasn't on the seventy-five list through a telegram. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he, this is some as someone as detached from the cycle, outraged journalism, and social media uproar as anybody. For for this to arrive on his shore and for him to be that upset about it, like that to be pretty bad. Um, it, I I wonder though. Does this, you know, a lot of optimism around Clay and his recovery for the last four or five months? Remember, they were talking about, oh, he'll he'll be doing five on zero in camp. They came they came out with that press release that was the most detailed press release talking about someone's recovery I've ever seen. Usually they just say he's good and he'll be reevaluated. The words are, oh, he'll be in camp and he'll be doing this and this, but not this. I'm like, wait a second, what's happening here? And we see the videos, and now obviously he's five on five, cleared for contact. Do you feel on any level, Howard, that there's almost like a rush, not a, the usual rush that we think about where the team is trying to push a guy to come back, but a rush from Clay himself 
to come back prematurely, perhaps? I don't know. I'm not sure I want to speculate on that. I mean, his antsiness was clear to me. Um, you know, and that's, you know, look, that's why you've got doctors and trainers and coaches and GMs and assistant GMs and everybody else to go, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> We're going to do what's in your best interest, even if you don't recognize what's in your best interest. Whether that conversation is happening, whether that tension exists there, I don't know. Uh, but I mean, I think the, the timeline was always that he was going to ramp up, you know, in this period of time, right? Going toward you. We'd always talked, you know, heard about like maybe he's back around Christmas, around the first of the year. I mean, we're in mid to late November now. We're a week from Thanksgiving. Like it's, it, you know, we're in range. So I don't, I don't know if there's any sense that he's pushing them to this point. But, you know, I think it's only natural that, you know, not just that he wants to get back, but especially in light of this hot start, now you, the imagination really starts to, to run wild, right? Like, damn, if we're really this good with no Clay and no James Weissman and, you know, it's 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 Steph and, and a cast of characters, like, like there's some decent players, but like nobody that, like, nobody, nobody that anybody's like, you know, um, you know, these are not household names mm-hmm. after this rotation. Yeah. I mean, Gary Payton II is on, what, like his fifth team. Um, and Andrew Wiggins was, you know, and Andrew Wiggins was so lightly regarded or, or badly regarded by Minnesota that they sent out a first round pick with him and got back D'Angelo Russell just to move on from Andrew Wiggins. And, and to his credit, he's he's kind of reinvented himself with the Warriors. But there's nobody else who's lighting up the the scoreboard, the switchboard, the highlight reel, whatever you want to light up. Nemanja Bielica is really offended by you. Right now. <laughs> Otto Porter Jr. should yeah. also be offended. Everybody, they they could all be. But it's no like decent rotation guys. Like I thought it was. Yeah. I thought those were good pickups, Bielica and yep. Porter. But Steph Curry plus all those guys does not. Nobody would have uh, predicted adds up to whatever they are now. Twelve and two, thirteen and two, um, and a signature beat down of the nets now to, to really kind of validate the whole thing. And now you think, well, my gosh, now what happened? If, if clay is anywhere near clay and Weissman is that much further along when those guys are in the rotation, man, like that, that team, that team looks more than legit right now. I feel like we're underrating Andre Iguodala here in this conversation because Andre Iguodala as the institutional knowledge, as the veteran, as kind of, as Steve Kerr likes to call him the greatest amplifier um, we have is er- he makes everyone just that much better by playing with him. I feel like Andre Iguodala is is a huge factor in the the resurgence of the Warriors. Howard, do you agree that we're kind of dis- not dismissing, but what he did for the Heat over the last couple of years, just being an adult in the room with a, with a, a lot of younger players, with the Warriors too. It just feels like he's always making really smart decisions and getting a guy like Gary Payton the second, a lot of really good, easy buckets and and playing amazing defense. No, I think that's fair. I think we are all sleeping on him and I probably didn't even give him enough credit in, in, in the story that I did earlier this week. It, you know, Iguodala's age, you know, stands out and the mileage stands out. And I think you got to be careful about how much you use him. But having a guy like him coming off the bench as essentially your jack of all trades, essentially your backup point guard, this this incredible playmaker, who also can, you know, still guard multiple positions, but who also, as you guys know, probably one of the easily one of the smartest players in the league, uh, and that's on and off the court. And a guy who, you know, that amplifier word it makes all the sense in the world. 
whatever Steve Kerr is, is trying to convey, and we know that Steph Curry is a great leader and, and he and, and Kerr together, I think, you know, set the tone and the philosophy for that team. But Iguodala does. He amplifies all that and he's a selfless player. And you see his impact. You know, he's one of those guys who, even in his prime, um, or certainly, certainly his, his Warriors prime, the box score never did him justice. It just couldn't. And you, but you watch him play, and you watch the way the ball moves, the way that uh, the 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 team plays around him, um, the way that he can orchestrate. I mean, it, it's he does. He 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 uplifts everybody, um, and at both ends. And I think, yeah, bringing back the institutional knowledge, bringing back a two way player, uh, a team that's got a lot more youth than it ever had during their run, and having him as as kind of a a guiding force there. He's also, I know, taken a very active role. It's something we chatted about a little bit just off the record, or just just when we were chatting. Like he's taken a pretty active role in mentoring the young guys. And that's not something we may be seeing paying off immediately, but I think we will down the road. I mean, the season has started, sports betting, trying to think of how to take advantage of some of these early fluctuations in the score. Are the Bulls really this good? Warriors, really? This good? And should we really be burying some teams that are starting out with a little bit of a rough start? Well, some people aren't really into betting yet, but I'm telling you, it adds so much more to the watching experience. So fun. If you want to get deeper into this stuff, get smarter about betting on sports or just the NBA, you got to get on with the daily tip. Just to see how it feels, Tom, you got to understand that when you're out there with action on the game, it can make what would be a boring game absolutely amazing. Think about this. What if the line on this game I'm watching right now was 12 and a half points, right? Yep. It's a 14-point game under a minute to go. Most people would say, boring, turn it off. But if I got action on the game, I'm watching every last second because I need to see if someone's going to hit that last-minute shot that takes it from 14 to 11 and makes me from a loser into a winner. So the Daily Tip is a podcast that gives you kind of some insights, some edge, make you smarter about betting. And just the betting experience, you learn some things. The hosts, Michael Jenkins and Chelsea Messenger, they break down the big takeaways and make sure you know everything you need to get smarter and feel like you know what's going to happen. With featured guests like bookmakers, Odyssey insiders, and bet MGM experts, you always feel like you got a fresh take on the action. And your friends, your buddies at the bar or in your group chat, you know what they're going to be thinking? Where'd you get that information from? Where'd you get that? It's from the Daily Tip. Feel like you're an insider, that you know the ins and outs of sports betting. And you know what? You're right, I mean, Watching the game on a Tuesday night, the game's a blowout, but there's always an angle that you can figure out a way to get in on the action. So as much fun as it is to bet on the game, it's even more fun when you got the inside scoop and listen to Michael and Chelsea. If you're ready to bet with an edge, tune into the Daily Tip presented by BetMGM. Listen weekdays in the morning from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern on Odyssey, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. What's the expectation for guys like Jordan Poole as far as the rest of the season goes? So if this is this the level that they want him to stay at, do they have larger visions of how good he can be for them in the short term? 
it's interesting because you know he had you know he had that that G League stint last season, and he came back, seemed like a changed player, and off to a really hot start in the preseason. He's cooled a little bit in the regular season, like the hot shooting, especially like you know I I, I can't remember what the, what the last number was. Is he at what like thirty five percent on threes? And he had been shooting really well from three, and I think he's he's dipped some. Yeah, he's at twenty nine percent right now. He was zero for seven against Brooklyn the other night. Yeah, yeah that's, that's that's not great. Um, I think there's a hope that he can be more of the player that we saw late last season and in the preseason, where he's you know can be dangerous from range as well as with the ball in his hands, driving to the hoop a little bit. Um, you know, a little bit of a secondary playmaker and scorer. But you know, did 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 the hype come a little bit too fast after the the hot preseason? Maybe. Um, but I also think, and this is the case, as you know, you guys know, everybody in this league, especially guys, well, everybody who's not a star in this league, context becomes so incredibly important. So Jordan Poole, as your your number two option, like he and Wiggins on any given night are kind of the number two after Steph, and they're distant second options in terms of production. Although Wiggins has some some pretty outstanding games, um, but you don't want you don't want to go into every night thinking like Jordan Poole's our second option. At this stage, maybe he gets there. Maybe that's what he evolves into. But having Clay come back and putting Jordan Poole in his proper spot in the rotation, meaning you're probably now the sixth man, or I don't know if there's you know how how if they would use a lineup with you know Steph Clay and and uh, Poole, probably not to start the game. I would imagine. You know, I guess it's it's, it's going to depend on how they bring Clay along. Um, you're not shifting Wiggins to the power forward spot. So no, yeah, there, you're not you're not going to have any starting lineups there as soon as as Clay is ready to start and play those kind of minutes again, I think Poole is your sixth man, right? That seems like the reasonable way this plays out. And I think in that role, um, on a second unit with Iguodala, like that, that's a pretty nice role for him. Yeah, because when I'm looking at this, I'm, I'm wondering, Howard, how did we miss the Warriors? How did we – how did we miss this? Like Steph's healthy. Draymond's healthy. Andre Iguodala's back. Jordan Poole is getting a lot of hype for sixth man of the year or, or most improved player of the year. Yet at ESPN, they had him projected 11th in the NBA with a 48 win uh, projection. 538 had him at 37 wins. Caesars had him at 48 and a, 48 and a half wins. Uh, John Hollinger, who's as spot on with his projections as anybody, 39 wins. Didn't even project him to have a 500 win season. I think it just all comes back to Steph. Is that I think Steph just we might give him the unanimous MVP, but as Steve Kerr likes to say, he's an offense unto himself, and he makes so so much around him easier by the gravity and the pull that he has. That I think people just I don't know they sleep on that, and what that does for your offense, and the fact that you can just I don't know um, you have. Draymond Green, who's probably the best defensive player in the NBA, and you have Stephen Curry, maybe the best offensive player in the league. How did we not see that this was going to be a juggernaut this season? Like, wh- why? We could still exercise a little bit of caution and say, let's see how this sustains. I mean, I do think we're at the point now where a month in a, we're still not at the twenty game mark. Right? Twenty games is, is our our rough gauge in the NBA, right? For who's legitimately good, legitimately bad, yeah, legitimately desperate, all that. That's why I've been saying all along, like, don't expect a Simmons trade until after the first 20. We need some teams to, like, come to grips with the fact that they are not nearly as good as they thought they were going to be, right? 20, 25 games is usually a gauge, and we're not there yet. So I think, you know, to an extent, let's give ourselves a break as uh, as prognosticators. But, no, they're way better than any of us thought. And, look, I, I thought that they, at their 
thought their best case scenario was was break back into the top four in the West. But that was still predicated on once Clay is back and if Clay is Clay or a close uh, approximation of Clay. I'll say why. I had a similar thought, Howard. I thought they'd be top four when Clay gets back. And in the meanwhile, just be floating there in that four, five, six range or whatever. But for me, Tom, it wasn't about Steph and it wasn't about Draymond. It was about the supporting cast. Like I could not have predicted that Toscano Anderson, Damian Lee, Jordan Poole, and I'm missing a fourth guy. Well, I guess Wiggins would be in that group. Would over the span of the last two and a, two years prior to this one, the COVID season, and then last season, finally figure out, oh, this is how we want to play. They 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 got it. They finally get it. When you watch them play, they they're not as good as the Sean Livingston's, Leandro Barbosa's of yesteryear, but they're. Figuring, they figured out how to play in a way those guys figured out immediately on day one of the 14-15 season. They figured out over the span of two and two years and some change, oh, like passing to Steph and then just wait because he's running and relocating somewhere else. He's not passing to me. He's trying to be nice. And all of those things, I think, are clicking. And then the other part that I didn't think, even though they were good at this last year, was that they could return to being elite defensively. Elite defensively? I, I knew they were going to be good. They were good last year. They were top five, I believe. But they're number one by a lot right now. And you watch them play, they're, all the stuff, all the signature Warriors stuff where guys are breaking coverage, not because they're wild gamblers, but because they know, oh, wait, this is this. This pass is coming this way. Here I come. Guys are trapping. Guys, They're doing all the right things. To me, it's always the Warriors have always been a story of their supporting cast, of if we have guys that know how to play. Bogut, Livingston. Know how to play without the ball, know what to do, and then defensively know where to be. The stars are going to be stars, but that's the separator right there to me is because their role players play smarter and more productive than anybody else's role players. I think the return of James Wiseman could potentially set them back. I actually don't see that as an improvement because I feel like Wiseman last year, they were stuck between two different worlds of are we are we contending or are we developing? And whenever Ubre, Wiseman, um, and uh, – Missing, whenever Wiseman and Ubre were off the floor, the Warriors were the Warriors again last year. We saw glimpses of this Warriors team when they were not spoon feeding Wiseman and trying to get him uh, get the training wheels off of Wiseman. So I'm curious to see how his reintegration into the team works because last year it was so stark that when Wiseman went down, unfortunately for him, the team started to take off. And and when Ubre moved to the second unit and started moving off the ball from from Steph and uh, Bazemore was playing more with Steph you saw you saw this type of Warriors team last year to be fair as a rebuttal for Wiseman and maybe even Oubre on some point both of them that was their first year if we want to go two years or three years ago and look at how Poole and uh, Lee and Mulder and Toscano Anderson and all those guys were playing they didn't play obviously Mulder's not here anymore but they didn't play like this I'm not talking about making shots not making shots I'm talking about this that that symphony of Pass, move, cut, screen. That, that, they weren't doing that. They were a lot of pass and then watch Steph. And now those guys have figured it out. So 
if I'm a Warriors fan, my hope is Wiseman, by virtue of sitting and watching and, and having to learn and see and look, and just having been there now for a year, it'll come a little bit more naturally because at the end of the day, other than Kuminga, there's nobody on this roster who gives them what Wiseman can do. And even that, Kuminga can't give them what Wiseman can do in terms of 6'11 and throw it anywhere above the rim. That, that's something they need. They, 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 they needed it when McGee was there. They needed it when Festus Azili was there. They need that 6'11 pogo stick because it's another element of spacing for the team. Yes, and I think they're very much looking forward to getting that from Weissman. He's, it's a dimension they don't have, and the ability to now play big with him out there and play small with Draymond. Um, like they're, you know, we know how this is in today's NBA. You've got to be really flexible and be able to, to play different kinds of lineups and, and match up different ways. Weissman gives them something that they don't otherwise have and have rarely had, um, certainly not at this level of athleticism in a big during their entire run. And yeah, he was a 19-year-old rookie who then got hurt. So, and he was a 19-year-old rookie who only played three college games. So expecting him to go out and figure out how to kind of intuitively play the Warriors' best style where Draymond and Steph have telepathy and just know exactly how to play off each other. And then you, the rest of the cast of supporters, is supposed to do kind of what they do, but you don't really know how to do it. And in Ubre's case, okay, he's a veteran who just plays a certain way and he couldn't quite adapt and they've moved on from him. But in Weissman's case... He's their development guy. And now he's been in their program for over a year. He's had all the time hurt to watch and absorb and learn from the veterans there. Bringing in Iguodala is, again, another guy who can help translate that and, and, and teach. I just think that the Weissman that we see the next time he gets on the court with the Warriors, I, you know, I, I can't say this for sure. I believe we'll see a different version of him. Than the last version we saw, that's certainly the Warriors' hope. Because, Howard, I'm not saying the media had too lofty expectations for James Wiseman. I'm saying the Warriors did. The Warriors were the ones who started him as a 19-year-old with three college games under his belt and started him next to Stephen Draymond, right? Like, they, they threw him into the fire. Because they knew that last year was not a contending season. And it was like, listen, as long as we're, you know, marking time for yet another year without Clay, as long as we don't think that we're, we're going to be in contention, we might as well invest as much time, minutes, energy as we can in this guy who could be our next, you know, good to great player, like this really critical piece that we just took with the second overall pick. So we got to put that time. So I, it was bumpy. It wasn't always, it, it didn't, as you pointed out, doesn't look like Warriors basketball, but like that was the right move in a season where it was, you know, where they were just kind of still in limbo. Now, now he comes back in with expectations. You know, now he actually has to be a productive member of the rotation because they're firmly back in contention. Um, whether that's title contention, whether that's high playoff seed contention, whatever it is, this season has different expectations. And so I think Weissman is going to have to to live up to that um, that belief, that faith that they've put in him more so this season. But again, he's had more time to kind of figure things out at the pro level. Well, I don't know if they need a guy above the rim anymore now that they have Gary Payton the second. <laughs> Young glove. He's awesome. Mitten. The mitten. Apparently, he doesn't like the mitten. It's a little too cutesy. Shaq br- dropped it last night. Who would like the mitten? Like, I don't think anyone would like being called the mitten. <laughs> young, but young glove, you know, I'm, I'm the younger version of Pops, but the mitten, the mitten, I think is just adorable. But maybe that's the reason why you don't like the mitten is because it's a little soft, right? 
Yeah. I dug into some film of his today uh, because I just find his story fascinating. And he he falls into the same theory that I have, which is that for some reason, second generation NBA players are underrated, that they get overlooked. And I don't know whether it's because of MJ and hit, everyone thinking his kids were going to be great and they never panned out. I don't know what it is. I mean, but you look at Kenyon Martin Jr., you look at Jeremy Grant, you look at Jalen Brunson, you look at um, Seth Curry, which is beyond me. I don't understand how Seth Curry could fall through the cracks when Steph Curry's taken over the world and Seth has to go to Liberty before he even gets to Duke. And then he's still undrafted, and now he's one of the best shooters in the league. Um, But time and time again, we see this. Gary Trent Jr. is another example. Second-round picks, uh, Jay Crowder. Second-generation players that get overlooked either in the draft or coming out of college. Gary Payton II was undrafted. He had to go through the G League. He was was pretty good with the Wizards a couple years ago. But he's been sensational. The highest steal rate in the NBA. He's dunking um, more often per minute than Giannis, than Anthony Davis. He's 6'3". Steve Kerr talks about him playing an inverted offense because Gary Payton, even though he's a point guard, he's 6'3". He plays like a center. He rebounds like a center. 11 rebounds every 100 possessions. But, I mean, how does that happen? How does a guy like Gary Payton II – he was waived in the preseason – 10-day, two 10-day contracts, anybody could have had him. And now with the Warriors, it seems like they have not just a good piece in the rotation. They have like another diamond in the rough on their roster that seems unfair. All these teams are trying to find Gary Payton seconds, but the Warriors, somehow the rich get richer. Tom, what kind of car do you drive? VW. A Volkswagen, right? So if I got you a perfect mint-conditioned catalytic converter, for your car. I don't even know if they come again. Let me pick something like a, a carburetor for your car. Replace your carburetor with a Volkswagen carburetor. That would be great for you, right? You, your car could use that. But what if I took that same perfect mint condition Volkswagen carburetor and to Howard, what kind of car do you drive? Well, for the last 17 years, we didn't even have a car because we live in New York, but we have been <laughs> we have been forced by our daughter's activities to finally buy one again. I now am the proud owner of a Mazda CX-3. How about that? A Mazda. Oh, great, great car. Great car. But if I pass Howard, the carburetor from the Volkswagen here, heard you need a carburetor, Howard. Here you go. Would that work for you, Howard? I'd say, what's a carburetor? There you go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> the point is, and as the old song goes, what might be right for you may not be right for some. Gary Payton II is able to be the maximum version of himself. Why? Because the Warriors don't say, He's a point guard who can't shoot and can't dribble. The Warriors say, ooh, set a screen for one of the the, the greatest shooter of all time and then roll hard and we'll find you and we'll throw it up in the sky. He gets to play a position that he would never play on any other team because of the offense that they run, because of the personnel they have. And so he's able to be used in a way that plays his strengths and not his weaknesses. Also, we have to also acknowledge He's gotten better as a player. The Gary Payton that played three years ago in Washington wasn't this good. Wasn't, and I mean, by good, I mean by IQ-wise. So a lot of times for players, regardless of whether they're second generation or not, it's all about fit and personal improvement. Some guys just don't fit in places. Some guys never improve, and then they just stay being who they are. Now, if you want to talk about 
why second-gen players sometimes fall to the cracks overall. I would say because people, it almost works against them. That people kind of say, oh, it's just because such and such and -and so-and-so is his father. When the reality is, a lot of times these guys are probably a safer bet in the sense of you know they know the amount of work it takes to be good at this level, right? That Seth Curry is not going to come in here overwhelmed by this because he's he's seen it twice over. He's seen it in his father and he saw it in his brother. Gary Trent or um, or Tim Hardaway Jr. or all these guys like they know. Jeremy Grant. Yep. Jeremy Grant. And and the cool thing about it is also they know, most of them, that stardom is not really promised to them. Like the entitlement isn't quite there. There are exceptions as always. But for most of them, they understand like, hey, it's just, it's a privilege just to be in this league. Now, if I can build on that and be something greater, like what happened with Clay and Steph, that's cool. But none of those guys walk in the door saying like, gimme, gimme, gimme. And that that's cool when you're just trying to win games. Do you buy my theory, Howard, that second generation players are undervalued? Wasn't the case when the Knicks gave Tim Hardaway Jr. that massive contract, uh, which they didn't yeah. have to offload, <laughs> but we don't need to go there. No, I mean, I think that guys come in with, with I actually think they come in with some benefit of the doubt um, in most cases because you figure, you know, there's quote unquote a pedigree. And by, by that, I mean, you know, it's not just about like, oh, you're this guy's kid, so therefore you'll be good. It's more that you do know what the league is about. Now, you might have a skewed view of it. You know, maybe you think that, well, just because dad got there, I'm going to be able to get there because, you know, he's taught me everything I know. Um, and you, I think some guys maybe come in with a little bit of, of entitlement, which maybe you need to have, you have to shake off and, and get over before you realize you've got to earn your own way. There's probably some of that in some cases, but I think more than more, I think it more goes the other direction. I think, I think you come in probably more mentally and physically prepared because you have somebody to, to tell you exactly what it actually requires. Um, whereas everybody else has to just kind of figure it out for themselves or, you know, they, you know, some, somebody else, a trainer, somebody tries to, to, uh, instill it in them. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought too much about the second generation guys. I mean, there have been a lot of them, right? And I also just think this, by the way, like the guys we're talking about, we're often talking about sons of Hall of Famers or guys who were multiple all-stars. That's a really you uh, like uh, uh, elite echelon in the first place, right? You think it's usually, I, I find most second generation guys are the sons of regular players. I guess it just depends on which ones are talking. So like Gary Payton the second is trying to live up to Gary Payton, which is yeah. tough. Tim yeah. Hardaway Jr. is trying to live up to Tim Hardaway. That's tough. Uh, right. Gary Trent to Gary Trent Jr. All right, yeah, d- different kind of situation. Um, Del Curry was, you know, more... He was a good... Very good. A good NBA player, but... Right, not a superstar. Yeah. Right, or a star. It goes the inverse, right? I guess, I guess it depends on who else we're talking about. Some other names. Devin Booker, Kevin Love, Wes Matthews, Demata Sabonis... Okay, that one's tough. But Cole Anthony. Cole Anthony again. Jaron Jackson Jr. Again. Darius Garland. Uh-huh. Al Horford. Uh-huh. Larry Nance Jr., another one. Okay, Larry Nance. It was pretty good, yeah. I don't know if there's a through line. You can count on one hand, I believe, the ones who have been all-stars. Of the second generation? No, whose fathers were all-stars. Oh, the whose first generation. Were. Yeah, okay. Michael Thompson. Tim Hardaway. Gary Payton. I'll give you Sabonis, even though I don't think Sabonis was ever an all-star, but clearly everyone yeah. speaks of him in a ha- hallowed <laughs> he was awesome. breath, right? Right. He was great. 
It's not that many. Most of these guys are the sons of role players. But then it depends on like, you know, the guys who never made it to the league, right? You know, Michael Jordan's kids. Um, we could probably go through a long list of guys who just never made it to the league at all. Scotty's son is pretty good, right? He's good. Is he pretty good? I wouldn't say he's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Patrick Ewing Jr. is another one I just thought of. Dude, the greater the player, yeah. that's what makes Clay Thompson probably like the biggest outlier is that his dad was a number one overall pick and somehow he managed to be better than his, his dad. That's pretty crazy. Like that, that Clay was able to be what he is. But you know, most of the time, you're looking at guys, Xavier Silas, right? Like, uh, wow. There's a pull. Yeah. What's, because uh, I was thinking about someone else. Oh, Kenyon Martin Jr. Um, these are all kind of like, yeah, my, like Kenyon Martin was really good. He was a number one overall pick again, but it's like. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Robinson the third. There's another one. The better the father was, the the kind of tougher it is for the kid to really become something. And the more the father was just a guy, the better the odds, for, I think, for the player. <laughs> maybe. Maybe if you don't have all that to live up to and if, if the bar yeah. isn't so high that it feels unreachable. Like it has to be high enough to be aspirational. You get the download of what the NBA life is like without having the expectations yeah. of fulfilling that, filling those shoes. Or the delusion. One last theory on this. If, you're, if your dad was like a guy who had to really scrap, that's the ethos that you then – are, are, are taught, right? Like my son, you have to look at what I did. I had to go to three different teams and I da, 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 da. And like, that's the lesson you learn instead of like, Hey man, I roll out of bed and score 30. <laughs> well, Howard, I'll take it. I'll take it a step further. You think about how we talk about magic Johnson and his, how bad of a coach he was and how obvious his basketball analysis and his tweets are. Right. And I always used to say, if you were like the smartest player who ever played, and you're trying to explain something to people who are all morons in comparison to you. Like, how would you even gauge whether this is high level or this is just something that everybody knows? It's hard. So taking a step further, if I'm trying to, if I'm a genius beyond like, oh, you didn't see me scrap or whatever. I don't even know how to explain this shit to you. Right. The idea here is that like the greater the player. the Steph, what were you thinking when you went up and took that shot, Steph? Um, I just, uh, shoot. I don't know. I just done it a billion times. This is why the greatest players don't become good coaches, right? Because right. you can't possibly explain it to guys who can't do what you do. And it would just be nothing but frustration. Even as teammates, it's nothing but frustration. When you think about, you know, whether you know, Jordan, Kobe, some of these, these guys who are wired a certain way and they cannot possibly understand why you, the seventh or eighth man, can't do it the way they do it. Right, exactly. <laughs> or why you don't have their drive and work ethic and dedication and all-consuming commitment. I did a story about this very topic a couple of years ago for NBC Sports. And uh, one of the fascinating revelations, I like the eureka moments that came in the story was that there was this kind of like linear progression of number of NBA second-generation players. And then suddenly – it just like exponentially took off and it happened kind of a Malcolm Gladwell kind of way is title nine with the mother side of the family. The mother was playing pro sports and playing pro basketball. So like, instead of we're looking at Del Curry, we should be looking at Steph's mom, right. And how she was playing volleyball at Virginia volleyball. tech 
and and Dirk Nowitzki's mother was like a, a pro basketball player. Like uh, Boris Diaw, didn't Boris Diaw's mother? Did I have this right? That Boris Diaw's mother was like a Boris Diaw's mother is the greatest female basketball player in the history of uh, France. Like that's she's like the Michael Jordan of France for women's basketball. Javale McGee, Pam McGee. Yep, and and so you had not just the father of second generation, but more likely these these fathers started mating to use a very like animal term is they started procreating with other women who were superstars, super athletes. So yeah, Mace is in the chat. Easy time. What am I easy? Mating. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I'm thinking of this in like a, a family tree or like some sort of genetic tree is like you're, when you look at just the, the male side of things, okay, uh, we can point to sec- second generation fathers in the NBA, but the piece that I think people don't focus on as much as the mother's side. So before you go, Howard, I know you got to go here. Tom's trivia. So, I mean, are you like a white noise sleeper? Do you need like city noise? Do you need someone talking to you as you sleep? Every night when I go to bed, I put on a DC movie. Maybe it's uh, Suicide Squad. <laughs> Maybe it's the Batman with Robert Pattinson. But I need something extremely boring to put me to bed. Wow. I can't believe you would do that to them. I hate hard with a mean right there. There goes our sponsorship. For me, I do like the rain white noise. Uh-huh. Not just the white noise, because white noise we do for the kids, the toddlers. But I have so prioritized sleep because after doing all of these science articles on the power of sleep, and that's when you like build up all of your memory, your testosterone, like all of these uh, hormones and all these if you're if you're working out, if you're running. You need sleep. LeBron James famously is like a big sleeper. I'm always curious when he's watching the late game. Not very often. Because you know what makes LeBron James King James, I mean? Crown. (laughs) He might wear a crown while he sleeps. But it's sleep. It's those Zs. It's catching those Zs. It's catching those flies. That's right. Sleep is his superpower. And Calm is the number one app for sleep and meditation. Calm has teamed up with LeBron James to help you activate the power of sleep. And I've tried it before, and man, it does help. You know what also helps is a really boring book. I get through like five pages now. My buddy, Kevin, told me, read in the morning, not at night. And I was like, I get it, but it also helps me put to sleep. The Calm app also helps. Here's what you do. Start reading in the morning. Start using the Calm app at night. Ah, yes. LeBron and Calm know one thing. Your mind is like any other muscle in your body. But you don't have to be a world champion to learn how to train it. Calm can help you train your brain so you sleep better, you reduce your stress, and perform at your best, just like King James. You know, you always think that the idea is you just got to power through. You got to grind all night. Nah, that stuff is like the 1990s. That's the Oscar Robinson days, right, I mean? Did I say Robinson? Havlicek. Never slept. Never slept. Just powered through. Didn't believe in the power of sleep. For LeBron, sleep is a critical part of his mental fitness routine. As he says, quote, Getting good sleep and finding time to rest is one of the most valuable things I can do for my body and mind. From the sound of rain falling on leaves to bedtime sleep stories, calm puts me to sleep within minutes. That's right, LeBron. I'm right there with you, which means I wake up ready for any challenge, unquote. So if you head to calm.com, that's C-A-L-M dot C-O-M slash Habershow, not Haberstrow. Haber Show, H-A-B as in boy, E-R-S-H-O-W. For a limited time, I mean, you'll not get 10%. No. You'll not get 20%. 
No. Not even 30%. I mean... 32%? Nope. Oh, that's the big number. 40%. That is the same. Steph Curry shooting from 28 feet or beyond. 40% off a Calm premium subscription. With Calm, you have access to the nature scenes that LeBron loves, like those rain on the leaves, and so much more, like sleep stories, meditations, all so you can be ready for the challenges that life throws your way. I mean... For a limited time, our listeners can join LeBron James, yes, that LeBron James, in using Calm and get a 40% discount. That's right. I didn't believe it either. 40% discount on a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash Habershow. Unlock content to help you focus, ease stress, and sleep better. Get started at calm.com slash Habershow. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash H-A-B-E-R-S-H-O-W. We usually do it around the guest, the guest of the day. Um, In your case, Howard Beck, I decided to look at the NBA's Howards. You had Dwight Howard and you had Juwan Howard. Juwan Howard and Dwight Howard played roughly the same amount of minutes in their NBA careers, Juwan Howard actually played more games than Dwight Howard in his career. 1,208 for Juwan Howard and 1,196 for Dwight Howard. So about 12 games difference in their career. But there's only one stat, one counting stat, that Juwan Howard tallied more than Dwight Howard on his stat line. What is the stat that Juwan Howard has more of than Dwight Howard? Glad you didn't bring Josh Howard into this discussion. He was really mad at me once many years ago. Whoa! Oh, monkey wrench. Yeah. Wow! Shots fired at my fellow Demon Deacon. No Howard Isley either. Very small group to pick from here. So wait, there's a stat. This is a counting stat, and it's a career total that Jawan yep. has more of than Dwight. The only one. The only one on his stat line. Even though he's played more games than Dwight Howard. Howard, this is so easy. I'm hearing this question at the same time as when Tom just read it to you. And already I know without a shadow of a doubt what it is. It's got to be either three-pointers made or attempted. Three, I'm going to say three-pointers made. I mean? Three-pointers attempted. It's neither. It's not three-pointers. It's not? No. I was actually tempted to go with points because Dwight, aside from about three or four years span, was never really like a big-time scorer. And Jawan came in, I think, more of a score. Yeah. Dwight has more points. Mays has come in with assists as his his submission. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, but like Mays is not on camera. So like you could easily just Googled it and then <laughs> went from there. I don't trust you, Mays. Wow. Are you accusing him of- uh, He admits he's cheating. Wow, Mays, he's, he's typing into the chat that he was cheating. Wow, this is, this is not okay. You're ruining Tom's trivia. No, well, at first he said he was chetting, by the way. So. <laughs> Deaf chetting. Chet Hank saying, no, I was not cheating. Big up, big up the whole island, massive. It's your boy Chetana coming straight from the Golden Globes, you know what I'm saying? Me, me, me father Tom Hanks presenting in a while, soon forward come. Big up, tune in. I know that <laughs> Dwight Howard does not pass. That was a pretty easy one. And I also believe that Dwight <laughs> Howard would shoot threes. I believe those two things to be true. Now I want to know the three-point totals for both of them. All right. Dwight Howard, 16 three-pointers, and Juwan Howard, six three-pointers. I'm Tom Haverstrow, and you're watching The Big Number. Attempts. The attempts? Dwight Howard, 92 attempts, and Juwan Howard had 50, 5-0. Really? 
twice as many. Uh, you can even go with free throws. Like I thought maybe Juwan Howard would have taken and made more free throws, but no, uh, Dwight no. Howard has 2,000 more free throws made than Juwan Howard. What's the assist margin now? That's the question. You like double them up? Juwan Howard has like 1,000 more assists than Dwight Howard. So it's 2,600 versus 1,600 uh, career assists. The fascinating thing to me is that uh, Juwan Howard averaged 0.3 blocks his entire career. 0.3 blocks in his career. Uh, Dwight Howard has 2,203 blocks, and Juwan Howard has 312. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Positional defense. Dwight's still playing. He still has time to make up that assist margin. Yeah. Well, his teammate's also <laughs> Russell Westbrook, so I don't think he's going to be telling much more on both directions there. Ouch. Howard back. Thank you so much for joining us. And what? We didn't even get to talk about the Scoot, Scoot Henderson preacher that he dropped today. Yeah, we want to do five minutes on Scoot and then I'll Scoot. Oh, there it is. Let's do Scoot. I just like the fact that Tom actually decided at the end to do a formal outro and goodbye yeah. after just completely just like shelving the intro and, and getting to it like as an afterthought. And actually, this makes sense now. We did the intro after we talked for 10 minutes. We're going to do... Uh, Scoot Henderson chat after you've already said goodbye to me. So this is perfect. Yeah, it is. This is great. <laughs> it's very confusing. Outros and intros. That's what this show is about. Sunrise, sunset. <laughs> Scoot Henderson, Howard, great feature. He's the first G League Ignite player to forego his senior year of high school, right? Yes. And is going through, he's going to do two years with the program, which is, uh, I'm interested to see what happens. I think the last player I remember who foregoed his senior year of high school to go pro was the kid from San Diego who was a big kid. Jeremy he Tyler. Ended up, Jeremy Tyler. There you go. He went to Israel, flamed out there, ended up in the league having a cup of coffee. Uh, he was a guy who famously played against Nick Kerr uh, in high school in San Diego. Um, this is quite the experiment, though, of, of them going this far has this always been an option that was available for the G League Ignite team, or did they decide, okay, we're going to up this a notch based off the success of last season? No, so seventeen-year-olds. He so Scoot is seventeen. He should be a high school senior right now. He doubled up his workload in Marietta, Georgia, to graduate a year early with a, like a three-five GPA. He's a really smart kid. He so he made this move. It was always open. Somebody else could have been the first. Now, the Ignite, of course, is only in its second year. So part of this is mm -hmm. just a function of that. But the G League, previously the D League, previously the Development League, previously the NBDL, whatever it's been called in the course of its existence, has always been a potential avenue for non-eligible draft kids, guys who were under 19 ever since the age limit was instituted back in 2006, right? It was always there as an option. However... It paid jack shit. Well, and also there, there was an 18. There, wasn't it minimum to be 18 to be a, a G League player? I'll double check this maybe while we're talking, but I, I had raised this issue or this question in the course of my reporting on this story. And I believe what I was told was, no, no, they could have always done this if I'm not misremembering. But the G League, D League, NBDL always paid like it was like 15,000. Or if you were one of the right. A-list guys, you got 22,500 or something. Yeah. It was nothing. It was not something you could live off of. It was not enough to be worth foregoing anything, foregoing college, foregoing uh, opportunities overseas, anything. The G League in stepping up this way with these contracts that are paying up to 500000 a year 
And Scoot's got two easy two years, one million, so it's five hundred thousand. A bunch of the other top level prospects that they're that the, that are on the G League Ignite right now are also making five hundred thousand. That level of of compensation just wasn't there before. So if so, credit to the NBA for recognizing at this moment in time that with overtime elite and with you know the PCL is going to come aboard, uh, come into into play next summer with China and Australia and all these places getting into the act, they. There needs to be other avenues until and unless the age limit goes away. In the meantime, there need to be better avenues. And now there are multiple avenues. And it is it is now to the advantage of guys like Scoot Henderson and his family and, and others um, at that level, these high school prodigies who don't have to go play for a college you know, uh, system that exploits the crap out of them. Um, and besides that, then have to worry about staying eligible and going to classes. No, he gets to be a full-time basketball player at age 17, play against real competition. He's got the other five guys who are all the other teenagers. They're all a year older than he is because he's the only one going in at 17. And then the rest of the, the Ignite roster is made up of veterans, guys who have been in the NBA mostly. And so he's, he's got a, a learning environment as a basketball player that he was not going to get in college. Um, and that probably was probably wasn't going to get overseas either. The problem for guys like Jeremy Tyler and some others who went that route, Brandon Jennings, another one, is that you're a boy among men, and they don't care that you're a boy among men. You you just got a kid. You either play or you don't, and you either contribute to winning or you don't because it's me. It's otherwise it's my ass. The coach getting fired because you're not ready. Well, that's not the case here. The G League Ignite, they get to be paid like professionals, trained like professionals, but it is understood, it's intrinsic into the pro in, in the program that. You're here to learn and we're here to teach you and to get you ready for the league and get you ready for the draft. And you, your, some of your teammates will be men. It will be boys against men in scrimmage. And then when you go and play the other G League teams, you're playing against men. And that is a much better test and learning environment for these guys and getting ready for the league than in college where you're just playing against other guys your own size and age and, and experience level or going overseas where you're just thrown to the wolves. And not the Minnesota Timberwolves who nobody would mind being thrown to. <laughs> Which that's worse, actually. Getting thrown to the Timberwolves might be <laughs> Don't worse. Don't get thrown to the Wolves. Do they miss the culture of college hoops, like the that you can be the BMOC at Kentucky or at UConn or Carolina, Duke? I'll th- fine. I'll throw in Duke in there. Like, do you, how much of the, how much is the Ignite team really missing that side of it? If you're getting paid, right? I went to college for five years. I enjoyed my college experience as, as a college newspaper guy. And and loved the environment of it in general. And but college isn't for everyone. Are they missing out on being the BMOC and being part of March Madness and all that? Like I guess there's some sort of trade-off. But in Scoot's case, and it was really interesting to talk to him about it because the obvious thing here for everybody, and I know if they sell you it's not about the money, then it's about the money, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> when I talked to Scoot about this, like everything he was talking about from the outset, and there's no airs about scoot at, at, at all this is not a guy there's no there's no contrivance this is not a guy who like he's really very straightforward in general he's like listen i want to play in an environment where i where I, where all i have to do is be a basketball player i want to learn from the best i want to learn from nba coaches he's play. he was going to be playing for brian shaw and then brian shaw went to the clipper benches and now he's playing for um for jason hart i want to play for for coaches who were in the league i want to play against other players who were in the league um I want to be a full-time basketball player. I want my best possible environment. And on top of that, the Ignite is giving them, it's paying for their education uh, via, uh, I think it's University of Arizona. Um, so he's go- taking online classes and they're also teaching life skills. And so he's getting, I think, a, a, a full holistic 
approach here that is teaching him as an individual, as, as a young man, as well as a, as a player. But yes, the environment of college and the, the fun of that environment, yeah, you know, that's the trade-off that he makes and that the others who are going this route make. But the payoff is um, you're getting, first of all, you're getting paid. Yeah. So there's the actual literal payoff. There's a payoff. Yeah. And you're better prepared. You're arguably better prepared. We saw two Ignite guys go in the lottery uh, this past summer in, uh, in Jalen Green and Kuminga. And they're going to be more. And and by the way, Overtime Elite has guys who are even as young as, I think, 16. Um, over the next few years, as these programs grow out, as as people get become more accustomed to this being a viable alternative and an attractive one, let's say, you know, Overtime Elite really, really booms. The PCL comes online next summer. That's the other league that's coming out to, to give guys uh, a college education as part of and a scholarship as part of uh, – or they're paying them and giving them a college scholarship if they want to do that. Um and they're playing professionally. These other routes, within five years, we may look up at all those mock drafts that Chad Ford and Jonathan Gavoni and everybody do. And the top 10, it's going to be like, you know, you know, John Smith, G League Ignite. And then the next line is going to be this other guy from Overtime Elite. And the next line is going to be PCL. And then, oh, and there's Duke. Oh, and then there's, you know, Kentucky, whatever. The top 10 may very quickly become this mix of a few colleges that we that have always been the big time programs and then a bunch of places that we never had heard of until a couple of years ago because they didn't exist. That's where this is all heading until and unless we hit the point where the age limit goes away. And then that's, yeah, that's an interesting question in itself. And I don't even know the answer to that. If the age limit disappeared tomorrow, is the G League Ignite still that necessary? Is overtime elite just disappear? Like, I, I don't know the answer to that. That's an interesting question, but we're not there yet. Another thing from your from your excellent feature, uh, a familiar name popped up in there, Christian Dawkins. Um, mm. And obviously, if you remember, what was the name of the HBO documentary? The, the, scheme. the, not the, the scheme. There you go. The Scheme. Uh, he was a central figure there and blowing the whistle on players being paid under the table. There are a lot of big names in that, in that uh, documentary. But I, I'm curious... What has he been up to in the last couple of years, and how did he get back on the inside here with such an elite prospect? Well, at the time that he was uh, arrested and charged and was part of that NCAA scandal, he was a runner for uh, Andy Miller's agency, which is is no no longer. Um, so he was not an agent back then. Uh, he was you know a, a runner, I guess, is, is the best name for him. Um, he was doing what everybody does. <laughs> he was. You know, uh, you know, networking and paying people or promising pay, all that stuff. People can go look it all up or go watch the scheme. He was doing nothing different than what everybody else is always doing and continues to do. He just got caught. Andy Miller and his agency got caught. Um, since that time, um, his his case is on appeal. He was he was uh, found guilty, but it's on appeal still because our legal system works very slowly. And in the meantime, Christian Dawkins still wants to be in the basketball business world. So he started his own agency, Parlay Sports. He employs agents. Uh, he, has, he has agents who are representing Scoot on the contract side, on the basketball contract side. But Christian Dawkins himself and his role as uh, the head of, of uh, this agency is advising Scoot's family on and, and working with them on 
the off-court opportunities, business opportunities, endorsements, partnerships, all that kind of stuff. And they've got a bunch of stuff already lined up. I, I didn't have room in the story to get into all that part of it. But yeah, like he's, you know, this is his second life. This is his, you know, uh, he, he, you know, he, he got through that. Um, he's still, I think, what, maybe late 20s. Yeah, he's a young guy. I guess I, I'm curious, like, after going through that and that sort of, uh, you know, hit his reputation, regardless of whether he was doing anything out of the ordinary or not, how does he get back in? Like, what was the sell, I guess, to the Henderson family where they said, ooh, this is the guy we're going to go with? Again, some things that I didn't get too far into depth in, but we did talk about. They were they interviewed at least a half dozen, I believe, agents. And while they didn't want to go into chapter and verse, um, this is Scoot's parents I'm talking about now, Crystal Henderson primarily, his, his mom. Um, we, we we talked about like what that process was like in hiring an agent. And she said, we talked to some some big names. You know, people, she's like, you know, people that you know, people you've heard of. And they didn't get the same vibe from them. What they got from Christian Dawkins was somebody who they felt was really interested in, his, in Scoot as a person, in his uh, in his welfare, in his career path, in what works best for him, both on and off the court. And they got the feeling that for a lot of these other agencies, and, and you guys know this, a lot of, especially the major agencies, they've got a ton of clients and they may have multiple all-stars and they may have a bunch of other people who, you know, they, they've got to go, you know, meet with all the time and placate and, and whatever. And you may not be that important to them. You may just be you know, another, another commission to, to throw on the pile. And the feeling that they got from Christian Dawkins was this is somebody who really understands what we're about, what we're trying to do and, and where we need to go. And they just, they, they, something in him struck a chord with them in the, in, in the message that he delivered and the, and the way he presented it, they felt they trusted him. That's the best. The, trust is the best word here. They trusted him with Scoot's career uh, at, at, in, a, in a way that they did not feel as strongly about some of these other bigger name agents. Do you think that um, over time, Elite, if we could project 10 years down the road, I'm curious, Amin and, and Howard, your opinion, in the 2031 draft, is it going to be the top 10, the most players out of uh, out of college? Or is it going to be one of these prep leagues like Overtime or Ignite? Or is it going to be European or overseas? College, overseas, or one of these prep leagues? I'll go to this point, which if, which I, if I didn't say it earlier, but I, I think within the next five years, as long as the age limit hasn't changed, even if, even if it has, because it's going to be slow for things to kind of start sorting out in the other direction possibly. I think within the next five years, the lottery, the top 14 picks – Top prospects, yep. Or so let's just even say top 10. We will see more non-college than college, whether that's some combination of international, overtime elite, G League Ignite, PCL, uh, leagues unforeseen still in concept form right now for all we know. Yeah. I yeah. think within the, within the next five years and maybe less, we will see a top 10 that includes fewer college prospects than non. Yeah, I mean – I don't know, the Brandon Jennings thing, you probably lived it on the other side is the idea that this was going to be this huge wave of American players going overseas and then it didn't really pan out that way. We never believed that because A, it takes a certain kind of player to, I mean, there are guys that have played four years of college and seven years in the league and, and can't adjust to playing professionally overseas. It takes a certain kind of player, one, two, the idea was 
yeah, it, it sounded cool, and obviously getting players players paid was great. But like Howard said earlier, these international coaches they don't give a shit who you are or whatever. All they care about is are you gonna help me win or not. So development wasn't really high on their on their agenda. I thought what the NBL has done the last couple of years is take a more concerted effort into understanding this relationship and how it benefits their league and their teams. And so taking a bigger interest in helping these players adjust and adapt. And obviously it helps at Australia, New Zealand, English speaking countries. So the culture shock wasn't as, as crazy as it was for, uh, for going to Israel or going to Turkey or going to Italy. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, if the money is close, that might not even need to be equal. The money is just close. Players are always going to opt to stay here than to travel 8, 10, 12-hour flights away in order to play basketball. Let me just jump in for one to make one quick point because, I mean, well said, and it just reminded me of this point that that I, I wanted to make. Um, this is where we always should have been. This is what's necessary. Yeah. This is how it should be. You know, like we could debate the, the age limit you know, forever. And then there, there are, I understand why the NBA did it at the time. We can talk about what the morality of blah, 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 all that stuff. As long as the age limit exists though, and it does right now, this is what needed to be. This is always what needed to be, especially if you're going to have an age limit. And if you were going to do this again, you'd like to have built up the G League Ignite and have, and even to have, have helped um, seed maybe these other leagues long before this, because what they're always needed to be, what there needs to be right now, what I'm thankful for seeing in existence now is these alternate routes where you do not have to go be exploited by the NCAA and then tossed aside if you get hurt or anything else where you can actually make money and not have to have gone to all like how many years did it take to get NIL to become reality and by the way NIL becomes reality in the wake of guys like Scoot and a bunch of others deciding see ya NCAA I'm gonna go make money doing playing basketball without you and and have a better path to the NBA so I, I, it's it's a long overdue market correction that we now have all of these options for these kids and their families to actually make money off of their talents immediately. And I again, even in light of the age limit, there are good reasons to, to say like maybe you're not ready at 18 for the NBA. Most preps to pros guys were not. LeBron was the major exception. But this now gives guys a viable and profitable path that always should have existed. Here's my last question on this. When the G League, which this is a goal for the G League, to become a one-to-one farm system, a true farm system, does the Ignite and a lot of these other places, do they die then? When it becomes, instead of one team that these top prospects are competing to be part of, it's not 30. And instead of, you know, this kind of uh, regimented approach, there is a true kind of open market on acquiring these young talents and bringing them through the system. Does that end the Ignite or I think, or do you think the Ignite is always going to be something there for those elite prospects? Let's stick with the framework of the age limit still exists at the NBA level, right? You can't get to the draft until you're a year removed from high school and at least 19 years old. In that universe, which is what we're living in now and for the foreseeable future, I think the NBA keeps it this way where if you are a mid-career pro or you're an undrafted guy and you're just trying to get to the league and you need somewhere else to play, there's all the other G League teams. There's the other 28 teams or however many we're up to. I don't think we're at 30. Um, but the Ignite was created specifically to be this incubator 
And I think that's the way it's, it, it'll remain. So for the guys who are already draft eligible, but not in the NBA, you play for one of the other G League teams, one of the teams that has a one-to-one affiliation with one of the NBA teams. If you are under 19, if you're not yet draft eligible, you play for the Ignite specifically. Um, I think that's like that setup makes sense because they're together. You can, you know, do everything that you need to in terms of mentoring and teaching life skills and whatever. They're in, they're in one place with one program to bring them up and get them ready. If you were scattering them amongst all of the G League teams, I'm not sure if that's exactly what you meant. I mean, but if if that were the case, I don't know that you get the same level of of care, frankly. Care, yeah. Because this was the concern. Remember, this was the concern when they first talked about doing this, about bringing in teenagers. Oh, they're going to get the shit kicked out of them by by all the men in the league, guys who are mid-career who are trying to still get to the NBA, and you, you're some punk kid who's making a little bit more than they are, or maybe a lot more, and you're going to just you know <laughs> brutalize these guys. Um, so the way to try to guard against that is to – and I know that this is part of the G League Ignite program, by the way. When they are looking for the veterans to bring in, half the roster is the young guys, the prospects, half the roster is vets. They are looking for high character guys who understand that their role is to not just be, you know, you know, you know, putting up however many shots or scrimmaging or whatever. Their job is to is to be mentors as well. So they're looking for the kind of guys who fit that and who understand this is part of your job with the Ignite. That's different than if you were playing for the Santa Cruz Warriors. Yep, and. Udonis Haslam's of just like a player, but also like a coach who yes. can mentor the players. Shouts to Udonis, who apparently got some real good burn last night. When's he going to hang it up? Never. How long is Pat going to keep this going? Not as long as the vet, there's a vet minimum. Just just keep going. I, w- I want this to go on forever. Go go until he's 50, at least. Highest paid assistant coach in the NBA. Yeah. He's, as far as I know, the only player in the history of the NBA whose nickname is not actually his initials. Like, he's not Udonis Daslam. Why is he UD? Why isn't he UH? Because he'd be mixed up with the University of Hawaii? How did he become UD? Everybody else who's two letters, it's their actual initials. He's UD. That's a great point. Hey, man. UD. Udonis. How about you ask him? Do not call me by my first two initials, by the way. <laughs> I'm not standing for that. This is the second outro. <laughs> I thought you had somewhere to go, so I didn't want to cut you out before we get to Scoop. I was having too much fun to hang up. So, no, I, I appreciate it. And and thank you for, for letting me uh, chat about today's feature as well. Uh, spent... Uh, a lot of, of time and investment on that one. And it was, and it was a really fun story to do also a, a quick, quick aside. One of the most enjoyable times I've ever had reporting a story because Scoot and his family are just phenomenal. Like they were just so enjoyable to spend time around. I visited them in their, their home in, in Marietta, Georgia back in late June, early July. And then uh, connected again with them um, in the Bay area when he was out uh, reporting to the at night in September and um, phenomenal family. And, you know, you try not to get too invested in the subjects of your stories, but he's one of those kids where it's like having done the story now, like I, I can't wait to see where his career goes. Uh, I, I'm, I'm rooting for him. And as you guys know, I don't I don't root for anybody. So and in general, I just think it's great that you're doing that kind of journalism. I don't think it's it's common to hear that writers can spend several months on a story. Uh, so that's pretty good that Sports Illustrated takes care of you on that front. Absolutely. Hallelujah. And amen. <laughs> Shouts to my editors. Howard Beck, Sports Illustrated. Follow him at Howard Beck on Twitter. And man, go find some leaves to rake. It'll make you young again. I feel like every time I do, 
It just, I just feel, I don't know, refreshed after doing it. It's good. It's good for the soul. I'm just going to go down the street, buy a rake from Ace Hardware, and just start raking other people's leaves since I don't have any of my own to rake. I'm going to find an empty yard with a lot of leaves in it. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but the NBA is back. Oh, the NBA (laughs) is back. It is back, I mean, and at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA, the key to victory is a strong starting 17, wait, strong starting five. Basketball, man, it's five starting five. It's basketball. Don't they have 15 players on the roster and then a two-man, two-way contract? Yeah, the two-way guys are not the key to victory. The key to victory are the strong starting five. And Tom, new customers can bet just $5 on any NBA team to win their game. And if they do, you win $200 in free bets. How about that? Wait, $5? And if they win, you get $200 in free bets? Yes, sir. That sounds like a steal. Like a Jimmy Butler steal and running in transition and throwing it down. Are you back on Heat Island, by the way? I mean, I never left, baby. I never left. And so I'm going to make my roster... Miami, 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 Miami. That's me. That's what I like to do. But DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also get skin in the game with same game parlays. That's right, Tom. You combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. DraftKings is a safe, secure, and reliable resource. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So here's what you got to do. What I got to do. Tell me. I mean, download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Boom, done. Use promo code HABERSHOW. Spell it. Not Haberstro, not my actual last name, but this program, Habershow, bet just $5 uh-huh. on any NBA team to win their game, and guess what you win? $200 in free bets. $200 in free Oof. bets. Ding, 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 ding. And if they win... Guess what I mean? You win with promo code, what is it? Habershow. Habershow. That's H-A-B as in boy, E-R-S-H-O-W. Do that this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an authorized sports betting partner of the NBA. And I mean, mm-hmm. I'm going to let you take us out with that lovely fine print. Oh, man. I love when the lawyers get involved. Hey, guys. Must be 21 or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.